This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back now to the question of police bias against black people. A new report from the Ontario Human Rights Commission finds that although black people are only 8.8% of Toronto's population, they represent almost 32% of people charged, while white people and other racialized group are underrepresented. They are also more likely to face lower level charges like marijuana charges that do not stick. Uh, I'd like to give the numbers out. If you have comments on this, if you've experienced this, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now I'm joined by Anthony Morgan, a civil liberties lawyer and advocate, and Ina Chadha, the interim chief commissioner of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thank you for your interest in the Ontario Human Rights Commission's work. And I also want to thank Anthony for participating in our news conference yesterday. He gave some uh, very personal remarks that uh, we've received feedback were uh, touching and um, very uh, insightful. And so I'm grateful for his uh, contribution. Well, Anthony, why don't we start with that? What is your experience of those statistics that we've just seen in black and white? Yeah, so the statistics definitely do speak to uh, the experiences, not uh, just of myself, but uh, far too many black Torontonians across the city. And so uh, I I certainly commend uh, Interim Chief Commissioner Chata, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, for uh, having the courage, focus, and determination to go through the painstaking process of gathering this thousands and thousands of piece of pieces of data with the support of an expert, of course, to produce this really important report for creating policy change moving forward. Yeah, okay. I, I asked you for your personal experiences there. Well, I, 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 uh, that's Anthony that I asked. Go ahead, Anthony. Sure. So so the, the idea of uh, being a person of uh, being a black person in this city and always feeling that you are under increased surveillance, monitoring, having um, unnecessary interactions with police, being stopped, questioned, documented. That is an experience that uh, far too many black Torontonians uh, have. Have I had my own experiences with that? Yes, but I think that's a lot less important than the fact that we continue every couple of years to have new data, new reports to show that the 440-plus Black Torontonians across the city, uh, too many of them are having an experience that's resonant with that. So it goes beyond just any individual's experience with police. Right. But it's usually, uh, those are the kinds of things that, that make an impact on people, as uh, as Ina said. Uh, there's also the statistic that Black people are 20, more, 20 times more likely to be killed by police. Ina? Yes, the research showed that between um, 2013 to 2017, a black person in Toronto is 20 times more likely to be the victim of a 
uh, Toronto Police Service for shooting. And so when you juxtapose that to the uh, percentage that you opened with, that black people uh, only constitute 8.8% of the city's population. Uh, and then we see with respect to the data regarding charges, they end up uh, being the victims of or having been involved in third, uh, over a third of all charges. You see the magnitude of the difference. And so those, those statistics are deeply disturbing because they speak to a gross, gross disproportionality between how, um, the numbers of black civilians and the, how they're, the Toronto Police Service are dealing with them. Um, Anthony Morgan, uh, none of this is a surprise. Uh, what makes this particular report stand out? Well, I think the climate of the times is is really important to note. We're having more public, open, and I would say honest conversations about the presence and prevalence of anti-Black racism and naming it specifically. It's not that anti-Black racism is new. It's just that where those conversations were happening uh, has, I think, shifted in the last uh, couple of months with the uh, resurgence of Black Lives Matter following the, the uh, killing of, of George Floyd. And it, within the city of Toronto specifically, thinking about uh, the the responses to the death of uh, Regis Korchinski Paquette. And so what makes this, I think, different this time is that we have a report where folks are more prepared to have a more directed, focused conversation on what anti-black racism looks like and looks like in, in policing. We also have the, the added context, the work that I do uh, is with the city of Toronto confronting anti-black racism unit and leading that team. And, and so we have a kind of policy infrastructure within the city of Toronto that can be more responsive uh, to reports like this in our engagements with the Toronto Police Services Board and also the Toronto Police Services, which the board oversees. Uh, let me give the numbers out again, if people would like to comment on this. You know, uh, there are, it's not the only issue where we see report after report after report. And of course, the question is, uh, uh, what is going to be done about it? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And I am talking to Ina Chadha of the Ontario Human Rights Commission and Anthony Morgan, a civil rights lawyer. And Ina, um, what's the remedy May for I this? Add, could I add to Anthony's uh, answer? I, I totally agree with him that we're at a pivotal point of a social and political awareness of systemic racism. I think the, the thing our report does is it really focuses on anti-Black racism and the importance of understanding how that is manifesting both overtly and subconsciously and, and un- unconscious levels of systemic. And what I think might be um, interesting for your listeners to learn is that Black people, Black Torontonians, make up 40% as 40% of the population that's being subjected to what we call lower level use of force. Lower-level use of force is a type of force that police officers exercise. They exert force that doesn't land in an SIU charge. So it might mean being struck, hurt, kicked, something that is um, not such that they're going to require a, a medical intervention. So they're 40% of the, the uh, uh, in their 40% of people, black people, in their interactions with police that are recording a lower, being subject to a lower-level use of force. The difference when we go back to the 8% population is that that's uh, incredible 
really um, like just the, the pr- profound that we're experiencing and understanding now how the discrimination is um, impacting people. So I think that's the value of, of our report here is that we're really drilling down into data, data given to us by the Toronto Police Service and SIU. And, and Anthony, what's the remedy for that? I think there are several remedies that are articulated, uh, recommendations that are made within the report. But I think one of the uh, key things that Black communities are calling for and have been calling for for far too long is is accountability. We've seen reports previously. We've seen statements from police services, police services boards, and politicians saying, oh, we're going to take this under advisement. We're going to consider this and have named a number of initiatives that they're going to take on. They've talked about training. But at the end of the day, we continue to produce the same disparate outcomes showing that Black people are being violated by the very systems that they support with their taxes to properly serve them. And so we, ha- we are having somewhat of a crisis of confidence that is only increasing over time if we don't see concerted action. I think continuing to collect and report poli- race-based disaggregated data is really key. Finding ways to actually, and this is the more controversial point, we're having this conversation around defund the police. What we need to do is have an honest, focused conversation on what alternatives do look like with respect to servicing individuals who are in crisis over their community safety concerns. I think this data and the decades of data before it have shown that we already have a broad base of evidence to, to demonstrate that there, we should probably look, be looking at how we can do other things with our tax bases. Um, well, I, I mean, even the police say that in terms of uh, mental health calls, uh, there are other ways of doing it, but those things aren't always available. Ina? Yes, that's right. Uh, the Toronto Police Service, the Toronto Police Service Board, and the City of Toronto have recognized anti-Black racism as a serious concern with respect to policing practices. And I think the police, for, for a long time now, have been telling us that they are probably not the best equipped, best uh, trained to do frontline mental health uh, intervention, and that we don't need don't need uh, armed, uh, off, uniformed officers showing up to deal with a uh, substance abuse emergency or a mental health crisis. And so that's the springboard of our report to, for two calls of action, the call of action at the city level and a call of action at the provincial level. And so if the, provin- the province can take a leadership role here in um, developing with us a legislative or regulatory reform that tackles exactly that question, then we might be able to make real uh, meaningful change uh, right across the province with all police services. And so that's what I'm hoping to do is to work with the province in addressing not a patchwork, not a service-by-service approach, but a province-wide approach that will help recalibrate how we do policing in in, um, both the city and across the province. Okay. Thank you so much, Ina Chatta and Anthony Morgan. I appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Just last week, Toronto's new interim police chief offered an apology for one of the most notorious cases, that of DeFonte Miller, a young black man who was badly beaten by an off-duty police officer and ended up losing an eye. And the apology came after the release of an independent review of former Chief Mark Saunders' handling of the incident, notably the question of why the Special Investigations Unit was not brought in to 
investigate. Now, DeFonte Miller rejected the apology, calling it a, quote, public relations exercise. His lawyer, Julian Falconer, joins me now. Hello, Julian. Thanks for joining us. How are you today? Fine. How are you? Good. So uh, why are you calling that apology a public relations exercise? Well, uh, and, and, and you know, I don't think DeFonte or his family uh, uh, take that position lightly. It's, it's always difficult. Uh, people want to move forward, and uh, when trust has been broken, um, there's a natural human desire to restore it. But uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, this make it pretty obvious. It's a pretty empty apology. Um, minutes before uh, Chief Raymer uh, uh, conducts his, uh, a scheduled press conference, uh, a, of which we got no notice, a report was dropped uh, in my email. Um, and uh, then I get a further email saying that the chief wants to speak to DeFonte. And, uh, and I ask, what is it about? This is minutes, literally minutes before he goes public. And I'm told, well, it's about the report. And what becomes immediately obvious is that there is an intention to go public and uh, sort of DeFonte is an afterthought because there's no possible way even his lawyer gets a chance to read the report before this press conference happens in a few minutes. And the truth of the matter is that that's, that's not respectful. That's not how in our normal lives, we deliver apologies, right? Uh, so that's why DeFonte called it, uh, well, the quote from DeFonte Miller was, you know, apologies are important, public uh, relations exercises are not. And this is obviously that, and that's too bad because I think that's an opportunity lost. Um, we were just talking to the interim head of the Ontario Human Rights Commission and a human rights lawyer, and they were saying that uh, there seems to be a climate now where institutions like police are more willing to address this and to make change. Do you agree with that? I was very impressed and have for a long time, I must say, so I'm kind of shifting gears here. I was very impressed by the work that uh, the, the, your your station does and the work that CARP does. And there's a line that uh, I heard on your CARP uh, uh, announcement just in the last few minutes that uh, it's good that Premier Ford has uh, committed to making change in respect of long-term care of our elderly, but CARP is going to stay on top of them until it actually happens. Right? Right. Well, uh, thank I can, you for the I compliment, can, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I mean it sincerely. Yeah. And... I would say the exact same piece applies in relation to all of the platitudes we're hearing on in the post-Floyd world about anti-black racism and policing. Yes, it is uh, absolutely uh, comforting, and uh, I've put 30 years of my life into this work. It's absolutely comforting that, um, you know, uh, there is, it, it appears that the concerns expressed by communities are starting to be heard. But uh, that's not creating change. <laughs> it's staying on top of them to actually see change. So, um, yes, it's comforting that the uh, chair of the Toronto Police Board has said that they're committed to change, but we have to stay on top of them to see that change happen. And so I have to tell you honestly, I think the first step has been taken in relation to a recognition of the importance of the Human Rights Commission report that issued yesterday. And I think that's great. 
um, uh, you know, we don't we don't need empty apologies. We need actual change. So concrete change is is now people are entitled to see that, and and we're not there. Well, I mean, and it's interesting because I, I brought up the long-term care analogy as well, because w- what we've been seeing over the last few weeks are report after report after report. And, you know, people, we know what the problems are. And uh, as important as, as reports are, uh, but, you know, sometimes, and I think it's also the case with long-term care, there is a public appetite for making the change, uh, even though it's not necessarily going to be easy. Do you, do you see that, uh, you know, on the part of the community, the wider community, and not just the authorities? Absolutely. I, you know, what, uh, sadly, it's where the rubber meets the road is, how do you get these folks to spend the money? Okay. Yeah. And, and the answer, whether it's long-term care, and I'm no expert in this area other than I tremendously admire the work of your station. I say it again. Uh, I always look forward to a, a Zoomer call where I wasn't on Zoom, so I like that too. Okay. Um, but but I, I mean this, that, that it's that advocacy to force them to spend the money. And what's that about? Well, that's about making them feel, A, politically safe to spend the money, right? And, and it's an allocation issue. So you hear in the context of racism and policing, you hear references to, quote, defunding the policing, defunding the police, or you hear references to police abolitionists. And these are all, you know, points of debate in people's democracy, and it's really important that the various perspectives are heard. What I think is unfortunate, frankly, is the term defunding the police, and I know I'm not going to be popular, I'm just revealing the fact that I'm an old part. <laughs> Defunding the police is really the issue. It's a question of resource allocation. Where are you putting your money? And a, a perfect example where it has nothing to do with taking money from the police, it's forcing leadership on how they spend the money, is the issue of these mobile crisis teams, where police officers who are interested in de-escalation, who are actually interested in mental health issues, are teamed up with mental health professionals. And we actually have adopted this concept, but we keep it hidden. That is, they don't use it. And they have a bunch of explanations why they don't use these mobile crisis teams, which are all about de-escalating incidents. And why do I raise this? Because I have acted on countless numbers of um, cases in which um, black individuals have been shot and killed by police. And I can't tell you how many of these clearly could have been the subject of de-escalation. But that's not the strong point of the standard rank-and-file police officer. They don't join for that. But we have a way to fix that. But you have to make the authorities, politicians, the minister, Sylvia Jones, the, um, the, the heads of the police boards, you have to make them spend the money on these things. So instead of handing out empty apologies or sort of platitudes about how committed they are, Where's the announcement that they've just poured a ton of money into mobile crisis teams and they get it now and they're going to use them? You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, are you looking forward to that in the next budget, uh, uh, the next budget uh, season? I'm sorry. I'll just, I'll believe it when I see it. No, I'm not. I, I just, I have not experienced that level of seismic shift. <laughs> I've seen platitudes. I haven't seen actual change. And take a look at Chief Mark Saunders and how he's been dealt with, right? So he's 
you know, he, he's, as the first African-Canadian chief of police, that was heartening to have that kind of representativeness in the top ranks of the police service. But when you look at how he handled Devontae Miller, right up until this fiasco, I have no idea who's giving Chief Raymer his advice, but it was terrible. Um, the fiasco this week with the, the sort of public relations exercise with Defonte Miller, we don't see actual substantive changes. We don't actually see concrete moves. So it's up to them to prove they're prepared to do it. And that's the problem. So far, it's platitudes. So far, it's platitudes. Uh, anything else? Uh, we have uh, just a few seconds before sure. it's time to go. What would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think it comes down to this. If people want to see real change in policing, then that police board, because understand the civilian oversight body of the police service, actually are responsible for making orders to the chief. Push the Toronto Police Board, push Mayor Tory to create concrete changes. And and that's the part. I think often we don't appreciate the role of the police board. They can make the changes because they're in charge of policy. Okay. Anything else before we go? Another 10 seconds? It's a real pleasure. And and good luck with the long-term care change. I I can't believe how important that work is. And and it's great that you're there. Okay. Well, thank you so much. uh, And thanks for being with us, Julian Falconer. And he is the lawyer for Defonte Miller. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.